Welcome to Renegade Naturalist Radio with Dr. Dan Bakken. Real stories and real science about nature and our changing environment. In today's program, Dan talks with Richard Rice, co-founder and president of the Conservation Agreement Fund. The Conservation Agreement Fund is a U.S.-based nonprofit organization that works to ensure the long-term protection of wildlife around the world through incentive-based conservation agreements. Today, I'm happy to have Richard Rice of the Conservation Agreement Fund on the program. I'm really happy to do this because he's doing such interesting and unusual things to help conserve biological diversity in a variety of places around the world and doing it in a very smart and much less expensive way and I think in a a lot more efficient way than is being done elsewhere and so I think it's very important that we hear about his approach and how it's different and uh, so Richard why don't you uh, introduce how you're doing this conserving biological diversity and explain how it's different from the standard practices of the major organizations? Sure, no, I'd be glad to. The, uh, the, the standard approach that most people uh, are familiar with is, is the, the national park model, which is something that's been used to good effect all, all around the world um, and uh, is something that I certainly support strongly. But the, uh, that said, there are limitations to how much you can do with parks uh, particularly in, in developing countries. Um, and that's something that the uh, conservation establishment has uh, been grappling with for uh, decades, really. Uh, and one, one alternative that I, I stumbled onto by accident uh, about 15 years ago is something that we call conservation agreements, uh, which is not uh, really rocket science or, or all that uh, odd and unusual except as applied to conservation. And basically, it's, it's just, as the name implies, uh, agreements um, between resource owners and conservationists in which uh, the conservationists agree, in which the resource owners agree to protect in exchange for a steady stream of, of benefits. It's, it's really just a business deal applied to conservation. I think if you told the story about the forest in Guyana, that's, that makes it really clear. Yeah, it was, uh, that was, as I say, it was something I kind of stumbled on by accident. I was doing a study of the economics of logging in Guyana, which is a, a country at the northern tip of South America. Um, and Guyana is a place that, that is almost entirely forest. It's like millions and millions of hectares of forest, very few people. It's a treasure trove of biodiversity, but it uh, it has... Uh, at the time, it, it had no parks. It had one park that was one square kilometer over one of the most amazing waterfalls in the world. Uh, but the organization I was working for at the time, Conservation International, uh, had spent uh, years trying to convince the government to uh, establish uh, parks, and, and they just weren't buying it. Um, uh, and at the same time, however, they were only too willing to uh, give up huge areas of the country uh, uh, for logging. They were allocating timber concessions like crazy. Something like half of the country was um, was basically being given away to foreign loggers for a song. Um, and uh, it was something like 15 cents an acre per year. Uh, so, 
as a joke, in, in talking to the, the forestry department, we just asked them, <laughs> I thought 15 cents an acre per year wasn't very much. We could probably do that. So as I say, as a joke, we just asked them if we could have a million acres. Um, and they said yes, uh, almost without any uh, hesitation. So you're basically requesting just renting the land at a really cheap price. Right. In the end, we ended up taking out 200,000 acres uh, as, as a, a timber sale in a timber sale agreement. We used their existing law as as a, a legal mechanism, and we just paid them the same thing that loggers uh, paid them for logging, but we were paying them to keep the forest intact. So we and that was that, that was working on something like thirty thousand dollars a year for two hundred eighty thousand acres. Is that what it, it worked out to be? The total rental is like forty cents, uh, forty thousand dollars for two hundred thousand acres. Yeah, big area, like five times the size of, of uh, Washington D.C. For now, less the price of a house in the Washington suburbs. Right, right, and it. So you just have to come up with that amount every year. And is there a time limit on the on the agreement? Uh, you know, do you make it for say twenty years or ten years? It was a thirty-year renewable agreement. Three-year, thirty-year. Okay. Now. What's involved in setting up a national park in comparison to this? Because it seems to me there'd be a lot of problems in setting up a national park, including trying to deal in a third world country, trying to deal with the national laws. Uh, do you have to get the laws changed? You know, I'd like you to explain a little bit about how difficult or not difficult that is. They, they really occupy two ends of the continuum because the, the, the conservation concession or conservation agreements are just business deals um, that are negotiated between two agreeing parties, and they can happen very fast. Uh, a, a park, in contrast, is um, ultimately it, it takes, a, a you know, the, the president basically signing a law that puts an area off limits to development. Um, and that that is, and, and there's not really any, there aren't really any rules about how you go about <laughs> getting a, a government to do that. You have to cajole them and wine them and dine them and lobby for it and raise awareness and uh, uh, but ultimately you're, you're asking them to do something that that is uh, that they're reluctant to do and that is even if they support conservation setting an area aside from development is politically unpopular and therefore difficult now what about indigenous people in a national park is it always necessary to completely exclude exclude uh, the indigenous people so they have to be moved out if it's going to be a national park or is that does that vary from country to country well that used to be the practice and that created a lot of controversy as you can imagine um it it is it is now no longer something that that's done but it, it presents a dilemma nonetheless because uh, the, the people who live there depend on using um, that the natural resource, the forest or the, the lakes and rivers and coral reefs uh, to, to make a living. And parks generally mean no development. So it, it's uh, that presents a dilemma. A conservation agreement, in, in, a, in contrast, can make conservation itself a source of economic uh, benefit, um, which can really help you get around that problem. Well, see, one of the things, among the many things I like about your approach is that 
this means that people are seen as part of nature rather than excluding people from nature. You have parks and then you have people. With the conservation agreement, the people are involved directly, right? And uh, why don't you tell them a little bit about the uh, agreement with the Maasai about the lions, because that's even a more direct involvement of people in conservation. Yeah, it's a totally direct involvement. The, the project there is in southeastern Kenya, and it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's a really important area for lions Lions, uh, as, as you know, are, are on the decline. There used to be something like a million lions in Africa uh, before settlement, and they're now down to like 20 or 30,000, uh, and all in parks and most in areas that are too small to support viable populations. Um, and the area in which this project takes place is, is uh, Maasai land. It's Maasai grazing lands. It's about a, a million acres of Maasai grazing land surrounded by four million acres of, of national parks, uh, including Mount Kilimanjaro, which is uh, beautiful and pretty well known. But, but the, and the, the lions are pretty well protected in the parks, but, but the lions and all the rest of the, the zoo has to <laughs> get across this this hole in the donut, if you will, the, the land in between, which is the side grazing lands. Um, and the lions uh, eat the cattle, and so that puts them in, in competition with the Maasai uh, to such an extent that they were, uh, when this project was started in 2003, the, the lions were being completely eradicated by the Maasai with uh, poisoned carcasses. Uh, and it was it was really a, an emergency. Um, the people that helped put the project together uh, went to the Maasai and asked them what they could do to help stop this killing. And together with the Maasai, they came up with this very common sense approach that involves uh, compensating the Maasai for verified uh, kills by lions and other predators, uh, kills of cattle, in exchange for uh, their agreement, the Maasai's agreement to stop killing predators. So do the Maasai have legal jurisdiction over this land, or even though it's within uh, the boundaries of Kenya, the, the government control of Kenya? Yes, and, and it's very clearly uh, delineated, and, and uh, there's no question that it's their land. Uh, and the, the uh, lions are an iconic uh, animal for the Maasai, right? So they would like to have the lions. It isn't that they wanted to just get rid of the lions, period. Am I correct? The Maasai still have a very intact culture, uh, and and they and the lions are an important part of that. Um, they, for example, uh, named uh, warriors were were and still are named for uh, for lions. They're given lion names, um, uh, but. It, just as a practical matter, as I say, the lions were, were threatening uh, their livelihood there. And they, once they got a hold of the, the poison, it, it became a weapon that was allowing the Messiah to, to basically wipe out. And, and how cheap or expensive is this? You know, the, the forest in South America seemed so inexpensive. What, what is the cost of this or what's it cost per per kill that you have to reimburse the Maasai? It's, I don't remember the exact cost, but it's kind of the market price for a cow. But it, uh, over, 
it's a fair price, and it's one that's negotiated. So, so it's much smaller than establishing a whole national park, a new national park, and funding all of that, right? Uh, the project costs uh, $0.35 cents an acre per year, which is about uh, $1,000 per lion save. Um, and just to put that in perspective, uh, there are, are rhino projects that spend 40 to 60 times that much per animal. Uh, so that's really quite a bargain. Uh, another thing I can say is, is that um, the project doesn't just cover um, lions. It covers all predators, including uh, leopards, cheetahs, wild dogs, and even hyenas, all of which, except for hyenas, are, are protected by the program and are endangered species and no longer killed in the ecosystem. Yeah, Richard, this seems so sensible. It's so practical. It's so fast. It's so inexpensive. Why isn't everybody interested in conservation, all the organizations interested in saving biological diversity, jumping on this bandwagon and doing it? It, it, um, it just seems to me uh, not looking at it as an expert in, in, in actually setting up conservation organizations at all. It just seems to me to be a no-brainer. But why, why is this not happening? I. I, there are lots of ways to answer that question, but I, I would highlight two things in particular. One is that it's just kind of a paradigm shift, obviously. Paying for conservation is not something that, that people are used to. The, the, the standard way to regard conservation is something that you should do because it's a good thing to do. Um, uh, it's kind of like uh, paying people to go to church. On the other hand, uh, you know, this, as I say, this is just a a business deal, so it's something that everybody is familiar with. It's not exactly an arcane approach to dealing with the world. Um, and the surprising thing is that biodiversity is the only thing in, in which this approach is not used. Um, but anyway, the, the other reason, apart from it being kind of a, a new thing and a paradigm shift, is the conservation, uh, the international conservation establishment, as you will, has been around for in a big way for 20 or 30 years and, and the staffing for uh, the groups has has um, grown and 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 they it's, it's grown around not doing this kind of thing um, but but the staff still costs a lot of money um, and so the groups are the groups are kind of organized around raising money to support their staffs to do whatever it is they do, which is not this. And so they kind of get stuck in, in uh, funding uh, the status quo, and it's hard to transition from what they do now to uh, conservation agreements, which would require diverting money away from their very expensive staff. <laughs> now, you, you said that you just happened on this, but your, your background is in economics. Is that correct? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so, so I mean, you'd be more likely to realize the advantage of it than, see, somebody like myself as an ecologist who doesn't have any experience of economics. So, wouldn't you say that played a role in in your coming up with this idea? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's a, <laughs> a logical approach to to economics. Right. Okay, so there's a chance here to integrate uh, the need for biological conservation with good economic thinking. And uh, we're running out of time, but uh, I just want to say, you know, 
except for the North American mountain lion, is my understanding, all the cats in the world are in trouble for uh, the kind of problems you talked about. And uh, this would just seem to be a natural. I think like there's less than 4,000 tigers. Uh, and so, and people all over the world admire and like to have cats around. Uh, there is a Save the Tiger organization. So I'm really hoping that uh, you'll be able to spread your ideas and your approaches more broadly. And uh, I want to thank you very much for having been on this program. Is there any last-minute uh, comment you want to make that I, that we haven't covered? No, I, I would just say that if people are interested in supporting, we have uh, we have a website, conservationagreementfund.org, uh, and you should uh, check it out. Um, I think people will uh, find what we do very interesting, and then we could uh, certainly use the support. So. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Well, thanks a lot. Richard Rice of the Conservation Agreement Fund. It's really interesting talking with you. This has been Renegade Naturalist Radio, hosted by Daniel Bakken. For more information about Dan or about his books, please go to www.danielbbakken.com. <laughs>